This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 22, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Ten years after a massive financial crisis inflicting substantial pain throughout the economy, the lessons are still somewhat hard to come by. Economist Vincent Reinhardt spoke with me at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference in November. One of his lessons a decade later, wish for better politicians. What differentiated the recession that took root in 07 and 08 uh, from others? The financial system. Uh, my wife, Carmen, and I have done a lot of work about what makes severe financial crisis different than uh, other plain vanilla recessions. And the answer really is that a financial crisis represents an enormous destruction of wealth. May have been paper wealth, but people thought they had wealth. And then they're going to live with regret. The government has to do three things. They have to admit they lost wealth. They have to allocate the wealth loss across all their citizens. And then where possible, they can use other policies to offset the adverse effects on the rest of the economy. Whatever you say about the stress tests in the U.S., at least we started admitting we lost wealth. In Japan, they never did. In Europe, they still haven't completely. And hence, there's a long shadow of their financial crises, even relative to what happened in the U.S. How effective were the uh, asset purchases that the Fed engaged in at uh, you know, achieving stability? Uh, first thing to remember is they were huge. The Fed started with a balance sheet of about $885 billion. It was $4.5 trillion at the peak. Uh, that's a lot of asset purchases. The net effect was probably a small reduction in long-term treasury yields, an encouragement to risk-taking uh, that worked in the direction of supporting the economy. The question you have to ask yourself is why is it the Fed still in the game 10 years after the initiating event? Right. Uh, the authorities that the Federal Reserve assumed and the depths of the financial crisis haven't gone away. Recent Fed chairs say these are fine. Remember that central bankers are among the most conventional set of people you can imagine. They travel in packs and they care about precedent. What the Federal Reserve did essentially was enable similar policies around the world, but it also enabled their successors to continue those policies. They just lowered the bar for what it takes to have a big balance sheet, to have credit risk on that big balance sheet, uh, to be more interventionist. Okay. So what are, the, what are the costs and benefits of allowing a large central bank like the U.S. central bank to do that kind of thing? There are really two different sets. Uh, one is about uh, financial economics and the other is the political economy. In terms of financial economics, Central bankers have this morbid distaste of volatility in markets. They're just worried about it. They're worried that volatility will set off market strains and expose things on balance sheets of pri private institutions that they don't want to know about. And so a lot of these policies is about suppressing volatility. What that does, however, is suppress all volatility. Volatility actually sends signals to investors about where you're supposed to put your assets. It rewards skills. It rewards people with a longer horizon. 
by suppressing volatility, you're just enabling, you're encouraging more indiscriminate risk-taking. Did the stress tests do something similar? So the stress tests were helpful in the beginning of recognizing the losses, uh, that the whole set of policies, however, uh, was uh, in part trying to let the air out of a balloon slowly, that it really already burst. It was about denial to an important extent. However, remember, the denial in the U.S. is small compared to the denial in, in Europe and, the, and Japan. Second part was the political economy. You got to remember, if you have a big balance sheet on, at, at the Federal Reserve, you basically have an invitation for politicians to think about that at a future date, i.e. to take some of the Fed's capital, which we've done twice in the last 10 years, or to monetize that debt, i.e. some sort of uh, uh, essentially seizing it. Look, we're on an unsustainable path for uh, the, the federal budget, something that's unsustainable stops. That's Stein's law. Herb Stein never explained how it stops. One way it could stop essentially is through financial repression, debt monetization. The fact that the, the Fed has and has decided to keep, in a sense, these authorities to engage in these large-scale asset purchases to pay interest on reserves, um, that seemed to have been a response to the fact that their conventional abilities had exhausted themselves at a certain point. Is that right? So that was being afraid of the zero lower bound to interest rates, i.e. that uh, when you hit zero in nominal uh, 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 terms, uh, there's not much more you can do with rates. Uh, so maybe you could do something with your balance sheet. Essentially, you oversupply reserves well beyond what it takes simply to put the funds rate at zero and hope that those reserves will get used in the banking system, that though that ample supply of reserves sends the signal you'll keep rates low for a very long time. And by the way, the way you got the reserves into the banking system is you bought stuff and supported their prices, treasury securities, agency securities, mortgage-backed securities. Uh, I guess my question is if, if that was a response, uh, QE and all that stuff was a response to hitting zero nominal interest rates, what happens when QE doesn't work again? They do more QE. Uh, and then uh, ultimately, if we you – know, so you're, basically your, your question is, what happens in the next recession, particularly if the Fed hasn't managed to get the nominal funds rate much past where it is now? Uh, and the answer is, at first, the Fed will just say, well, we're not going to tighten anymore. Then they will cut rates and then they will tell you we're going to keep rates low for a long time. Uh, if that's not working, then they'll do more QE and they will potentially expand the range of the assets they buy. And if that's not still working, then it won't take much to uh, uh, get politicians to enter the discussion, i.e. to provide the fiscal space for fiscal expansion. Uh, you know, one of the big complaints uh, among Americans in 2009 and 2010, I guess 2008 through 2010, was the fact that these losses uh, were not able to be absorbed by the institutions that incurred them and that 
everybody had to pay. Uh, a big lesson was capital is really important. And if you're going to let financial institutions take on risky, risky transactions, then you should care about capital. Another lesson is you should be more precise about what counts as capital. The fact that agency securities and mortgage-backed securities were being counted 100% as capital uh, uh, shouldn't make you uh, confident. Uh, and what we also learned more than anything is we let our financial system get too complicated. In some sense, we let entities slice and dice risk to create new assets, some of which were safe and some which were very risky. The balance sheet of the big institutions had hundreds or even thousands of special purpose vehicles, you know, i.e., uh, corporations owned by the big corporation, the mothership, and that uh, the outside world just couldn't understand their risk taking. That what that means is the regulators didn't understand the risks big financial institutions were taking. Indeed, they just delegated to them, do your own risk assessments and let us know the results. It meant that market participants couldn't evaluate the risks they were taking because they might not actually be lending to the big entity. They might have been lending to some entity subdivided way, way down. And then thirdly, they couldn't manage themselves. The, the leadership of those big organizations didn't know the risks they were taking. It leads to all sorts of suitability problems. All right. So going forward, uh, what should the Fed do to avoid the possibility that one that we will, would have a crisis that would that would go this deep, two that you would have the institution have to assume new powers in order to deal with it, and that losses will not be socialized across the economy. Okay, so the bad news is what the Fed should do is wish for better politicians. To an important extent, the Fed stepped in in two thousand eight two thousand nine because. The Congress didn't or the financial leadership uh, used authorities granted to it by Congress in different ways. TARP, by the way, Troubled Asset Recovery Plan, was sold to Congress as a mechanism for supporting the prices of mortgage-related assets to protect housing. Almost immediately, it was turned around to use as a policy to recapitalize banks. What did that mean? Well, if you wanted to support housing assets, the only game in town was the Fed. If TARP had been used the way it had been described to it by the Treasury, then maybe the Fed wouldn't have gotten into the game. With regard to regulatory policy, um, uh, Congress, by the way, mostly has an arm's length approach. It's too complicated. It's too many favors associated with those, those policies. And it's left to technicians and technicians just sort of burrow further and further down into details and miss the big picture. Yeah, I know. I've, I've read pieces of Dodd-Frank and a lot of the regulations that are written in Dodd-Frank, frankly, don't answer a lot of the question, the basic mm -hmm. questions about like, what is capital for a bank? What 2,314 pages, that sends a signal. And by the way, you know what is the complete design failure of Dodd-Frank? which is it tried to protect the regulated sector, saying let's price the safety net. Let, let's, if, if these firms are too big to fail, they have to have more capital, they have to undergo more scrutiny, more regulation. 
That's that's fine. Price it. However, they didn't do anything to change the final demands for risk of investors. And in a market economy, if there's a final demand out there, there will be supply getting to it. And so what Dodd-Frank did was just encourage the non-bank sector to provide the same risk return products to the final investor, bypassing the place we know the most about, the one that has the most scrutiny, the regulated community. So is that a call for deregulation broadly of the financial sector? It's a call for less regulation and smarter regulation, uh, recognizing that financial institutions tend to uh, organize themselves in ways that make themselves too big to fail. So living wills, if they're done right, are actually helpful. Uh, making the organizational structure of these big entities more compartmentalized so you can take them apart if you have to. Those, those things are, are helpful. And also understanding where you're giving subsidies to the government. I mean, most of the guaranteed mortgages are no longer originated by banks. Tell me how that works. Right. Yeah. The uh, and it's it's inter inter interesting that there wasn't as much skin in the, there was so little skin in the mm -hmm. game for so many players in the mortgage market, even as late as two thousand seven. That that's something about regulation. And it's forgetting about capital, higher capital, simpler regulations, more more well defined uh, corporate structures. Those make the market system work better. You know, in some sense. You know, the biggest question for anybody who supports free markets is, why do we have a big financial crisis? What happened to market discipline? And I think my answer is, we let financial institutions get too complicated. We didn't have an arm's length relationship with them, and uh, it just invited problems. Vincent Reinhardt is Managing Director, Chief Economist, and Macro Strategist at BNY Mellon Asset Management North America. We spoke at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference in November. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>